Hello and welcome back to the Futsal Pod. I am Richard Ward. Joining me as always, we have the one, the English goat, Stuart Cook. Well, that was a much better introduction than last week. Can we uh, can we put this one out first? I've been working on it. And in assistance, his child, his protege, England's most successful futsal player, played in many countries around the world, Liam the Paul Palfreeman. Wagwan! My, my, my intro changes, that's what I'm saying every week. Perfect. How are we doing, boys? Are we all right? Yeah, I'm all good. Um, looking forward to chatting today and getting through some slightly different subjects than last week, I think. I think last week was a little bit serious um, as an introduction and some of the topics we covered, but we'll see how we go today. I'm just coming back to uh, try and put a better performance in than my first week because I felt like I didn't do myself justice. So here we are. And you do sound just like a Radio 5 Live call-in as well, so... That's, uh, that fits all the nutty opinions you're going to be giving us. So just as a, as a bit of a topic for today, we've got the recent preliminary draw. Obviously, we've got Northern Ireland in the mix and Scotland. So some fellow home nations wishing them all the best up. We'll talk about that a little bit. Talk about England's success in the prelims. Um, talk about our kind of record in the, in the past. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, players and coaches, how, how we, as players, how we want to be coached based on our experience. So that's the plan for today. All right, so boys, so let me just talk about the, the prelim draw that's just happened for the, it's, a, it's the Euros, right? Futsal Euros 2026? Yeah, that's correct. Cool. So Group A, we've got Cyprus, Andorra, Estonia, Northern Ireland. Some absolute futsal titans in that group. Group B, Israel, Bulgaria, Austria, San Marino. And then Group C, Switzerland, Malta, Gibraltar and Scotland. So general thoughts, how, how do you think our, our home nations are going to do? Yeah, I think obviously the the, um, the format's changed quite a lot, hasn't it, since, well, since we were last in it anyway. Um, so obviously you've got three groups of four, but my understanding is that the top two now from those three groups go through. So I think actually, um, I think they've both got a really great opportunity. Um, you know, we're probably both a little bit out of the loop in terms of what exactly um their opposition are going to look like because obviously we've, there's been what four or five years since we've seen majority of these play well, yep. up close anyway you know but I think um, for, from Scotland's point of view I think Gibraltar Malta and Switzerland um, I know we've we've placed Malta and Gibraltar um, numerous times over the past in, in the past sorry I think they've got to sort of fancy their chances to be able to pick up a, a couple of wins and results and, and have a chance and finishing the top two in group C and obviously, personally, I've been involved with Northern Ireland recently, and I know they're as a group are really excited to to try and push on and and finish in the top two of what, any of the groups um, or anybody they were drawn against in this this prelims. So I think they'll they'll probably be looking at that and you know going away and doing their research, and I think they'll they'll be confident that they can go away having had some relatively close results and good results um, in the, the last prelims. I think they'll be 
that we I think that group to... I think that group is a bit of a sleeper, you know. I think Cyprus, when we played them five four, the way that they played, they had very aggressive plays from the fly keeper. And I think we were lucky to score with sort of six seconds on the clock. Um so yeah, Cyprus, yeah. I think, bit of a sleeper. Andorra always been a hard game. I think the last sort of five games England have played them, it's been three two, but it's always hard. They've got you know, Spanish players playing in the in the lower leagues. Sorry, with, I think what you find with those two is that the, the last few times we've played them is they've reverted to fly keeper quite quickly. Um, and I think I think that's probably always the caveat with with these games is is what what do the game plans look like for for these teams and do they just kind of do what you expect them to do or do they have something that changes the dynamic of the game? When we played Cyprus, because we were battering them what, like five v five, that's when they revert to fly keeper. Yeah, so the last time we played them in the qualifiers out in Latvia, I think what Liam sort of describing is exactly how it played out. But we we already knew that that was probably likely to be their game plan based on the the research we'd done beforehand. Uh, I think they just did it quicker than usual because we were threatening to run away with the game when it was just five v five, and obviously yeah. it, it basically took our momentum away. And 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 that I suppose that's kind of what what I was alluding to in terms of their game plan. And we've, that happened, that's exactly what happened when we played Andorra in 2015 out in Malta. Um, we went two nil up, I think quite quickly. And we were threatening to really sort of run the score up in the first half. And as soon as we came out in the second half, they'd gone straight to fly. Um, and they'd obviously come out with a different game plan. And they might've even gone fly just before halftime. It was, it was a good few years ago, but uh, they so did was, exactly the same. 2015 it was. January 2015. Yeah, um, 3-2 it finished in the end, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so... And the uh, I, the I Cyprus like game 2019, so it is sort of five years for dinosaurs, really. Yeah. So I think what we're saying is, I think Andorra and Cyprus will be tricky. Estonia as well, that sort of when I started playing the kind of first uh, few games were against Estonia, they were pretty ragged. But since then, I think they've had some impressive results. Didn't they sort of draw with Latvia? And do some. They did some other impressive stuff. But either way, I look at that group and I think Northern Ireland. You're looking for some Conor Miller magic to get them through that group. Um, Scotland, on the other hand, Gibraltar and Malta, got to be licking your lips, surely. If those are the only two teams you've got to beat, Switzerland, I think, have got potential. But Gibraltar and Malta, you've got to be looking at those with uh, rubbing your hands, right? Yeah, I think the big difference as well is. I think historically, I think when you look at a team like Gibraltar and maybe less so Malta now with the way their leagues progressed, um, I think they they come from primarily a football background. So if you are if you can get your game plan right and you can put them, you know, maybe press them in the right areas and, and create problems for them, they don't have that sort of bit. They're not necessarily able to fall back on a lot of futsal experience to see them through it. Um, so again, they're probably not as is comfortable doing, say, fly keeper or changing their game plan in the way that Andorra and Cyprus are. You know, Cyprus have had a professional league for, what, 15 years at least, because we know Ursa went out there as a years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. Um, yeah. and, and obviously, like you mentioned before, in terms of the Andorans, you know, a lot of them play lower level in Spain and have probably played the game, you know, throughout maybe school and, and as coming through as as kids and young players. So I feel like their background allows them to be a different kind of challenge. I think they can probably deal with the, the 
the game and the constraints of the game a little bit better than players who are transitioning from football unless yeah. they have played for a long time. That's just my sort of view on the, the actual nations. Yeah, I think the thing about the Andorran team as well, and we'd always see this in the pretty much programmes, you'd always look, are, are all the players playing you know, in their home country, any pros? And whenever you saw the Andorran players, they all played basically at the same club. So it gives them that continuity. So it means yeah, we, that pieces are going to be good. They're going to be well organised, like you said. Good game plans. Yeah, I think we come up. We we across the years, I think we've come up against a lot of teams who have primarily sort of had two to three teams where mo- the majority of the players have come from, and they sort of would play in fours and fives together. And I think I think that's always like you say, it, it's always beneficial because you get the as long as the coaching within the club setup is is good and and the working with the national sort of team, I think that gives gives individuals um, a slight leg up, whereas opposed to sort of Northern Ireland, where the majority of the players are probably transitioning from various different clubs with various different frameworks and principles and philosophies. And then it's a bit more difficult to try and bring that all together. Um, unless you, you sort of commit in the time as a, as a squad to being together a little bit more. Joining us now, the one, the only, the man in the middle, Russell, the squirrel, Goldstein. Russell, hello, welcome. I feel like I don't have a, the adequate headphones compared to both of you, to be honest. Is that is that Diet Coke at 10.25, I see, I hope? I think that's Cookie keeping his sugar levels oh, high. No, sorry, that's, that, that, that's just a little bit of blackcurrant uh, to start the morning off with. Well, uh, actually... Cookie, Rush, do me a favour, right? So just, I just want you to close your eyes for a second and throw yourselves back in time. It's the 15th of December, 2014. England have just won a corner playing against Andorra. <laughs> Can you okay. talk me through the next four seconds, please? Uh, well, uh, let, I'll go first. I'll, I'll, I'll go first and then Russ can carry on. So I think we mentioned on the last pod that, that me and Russ probably weren't uh, let's say close friends when Russ first won his competition to get into the England squad. Um, what when, what year did you get into the England squad, Russ? 2013-ish? 2014. Yeah, 2014. Was it 2014 yeah. you got into the squad? Oh, right, okay. So I remember, I think it was second game against Andorra? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, second game against Andorra. I remember being on the left-hand side of the court having probably played with a playing with a four that looked like Argon, Bally and maybe Dave Jennings at the time. Good, good players. Um, good four. Yeah. Good four. Yeah. Uh, at least yeah, 50% of it. Um, <laughs> no, to be fair, it was, it was a good balance for a couple of, couple of righties, couple of lefties and a goal scorer. Um, yeah. I, I remember being on the left-hand side of the court and trying to go one V one down the line and trying to, put a second post in and it getting blocked. But there was a bit of a runoff on the court um, in the venue. So I remember having to go and get the ball and probably traveling five to 10 yards to go and get it before I came back. We'd made a sub in that time. So I think, I think Bally had gone off and, and Mr. Goldstein had come on, but I'd kind of rushed to get the ball and rushed to get back and they hadn't really set up Andorra. So I just put the ball down, spotted the white shirt in the box and, and fired it straight across for a tap in. And until I was running over to celebrate, I didn't realise it was Russ who was scoring his first goal for England. And a little bit of me inside was like, oh, crap, it's Russ. <laughs> <laughs> but 
yeah, um, that that's that's probably the story behind it. And I know we've talked about Russ in terms of, <laughs> yeah, there was there was a small part of me that was like, ah, maybe I would have taken my time if I'd have known that was Russ at the time. But yeah, it's um, yeah, that's my that's my memory of the uh, the situation anyway. How do you see it, Russ? Uh, came on. I thought to myself, well, I haven't got any leg power to, to to kick the ball on my left foot for a shot. So I'll just do what I usually do and run to the back post. Uh, obviously, at this point, I'm thinking the polar opposite. I know Cookie's got great vision. He's going to find me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it then comes in, it hits me. I then score. I run to the opposite corner flag where no one is. <laughs> I think, what am I doing? Do a U-turn. Come back. Look Cookie in the eye, who's now walking over. Um, <laughs> we both look at each other thinking, and I could see it in his eyes. He was thinking, why couldn't this be someone else? I, I just remember I just remember us doing a very awkward hug. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I genuinely remember it being a little bit awkward how we celebrated. <laughs> Because a lot, like, like I said, we we weren't we weren't exactly best of friends at the time. <laughs> Did you explain the reason what happened? N- no. So, uh, all right. So, in terms of explaining the reason why I didn't like you for a long time, oh, go on, go I mean, on, I think most I people who come across you will understand why I didn't like you for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't but need an explanation. The, the reality is, we 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 had a bit of an argument or a disagreement over Twitter, and I just didn't like you, and for for a long time, I. Just couldn't couldn't stand you to be honest, mate. <laughs> Every everything about you was so annoying. The voice, <laughs> the posture, the personality. Um, yeah, and I think the, probably the only thing that's got us to this point is is how much you flatter me. So I've, I've had to accept you into my small circle. Wow. So, look, I, I think the first time I was what I was, I was eighteen on a bus a Loughborough bus on the way to the game and Loughborough didn't like you anyway. You put up a tweet about the game and everyone's like, oh, go on, reply. I'm thinking, yeah, let me get, let me get onto it. It was a photo <laughs> of me asleep with my dog tag on that I thought was pretty cool because it was like an 18th birthday present. Like the diamonds in there. You came, you've come back and said to me, oh, what's, what's that around your neck? I've then come back and said, well, um, here's a here's the pool in my garden for you to come do a recovery session at. Sick note. <laughs> and then I think, <laughs> yeah, it just uh, didn't end well. Uh, yeah, I think your actual words were, "It's worth more than anything you own." <laughs> Ooh, that's, yeah, that's, bear, yeah, bearing in mind wow, at the time, that's, I already, that's the truth. Bearing in mind at the time, I had two kids, owned my own house, and and I was driving a relatively nice car because I was a lot older than you. Um, and I, like I say, I think the reason that I struggled to like you early doors in your England career was because you were awful. A hundred percent. You were, you were a competition winner, but one well, of the, came one, in, he was, he was a pivot, right? He does. He wasn't <laughs> showing us, you know, what makes him such a good player today, popping in the well, middle, right. keeping the ball. I love, how Woody's, I love how Woody's the middleman of this, trying to trying to say, oh, no, he did have some qualities for England. I'm waiting for my opportunity, <laughs> don't worry. So here's a question then. Woody, what position did you start as for England? Pivot? I was a pivot. I was a pivot. Liam, what position did you start for England? Winger. Was it winger? But, what, yeah. all right, what, what position did you start as a futsal player? I was a, a pivot in tier two, banging seven goals a game. It was great. Okay. And <laughs> and the position I started in futsal was a pivot. We yeah. Almost everybody new to the sport is 
put as a pivot because you're just out of the way and you can't create, <laughs> you're not going to cost too many goals. So, yeah. so someone's seen you, they go, he's got feet, put him as a pivot. Yeah. And then you just slowly work your way into any position that you, you're capable of playing. Um, <laughs> or just, or just any minutes that you can get, you'll play anywhere. No, no, come on. We're Woody where someone's tired. Woody's run on before that was even <laughs> said, let's make a sub. I'm John O'Shea. I think, I think, I think it's just to bring it back to a slightly more serious topic, I think, but I do think that Russ is, is a perfect example of what we were talking about last week in terms of the commitment and the dedication to, to improving and understanding the game. You know, I, I've, said it on other podcasts and to people that, you know, I think Liam and Ross are probably two of the the best futsal players in the country because of the way they move, their understanding of space, timing and movement. And like I say, Russ was a competition when he came in, but it shows what listening and paying attention and going above and beyond in terms of learning and understanding the game, that even though he falls over the ball every time he wants to do a step over, he's still one of the top futsal players in the country. Yeah, I, mean, I can add to that. And then he can... Dig yourself a hole, Russ. I mean, I've played probably more times with you than any other player. And, like, you know my game, I know your game, and I can always see what you're trying to do, and you're so easy to play with. And that's the good thing about, you know, playing with playing with anyone who knows the game is it just make it easy for the players around you. I think from my point of view, you got to think, considering when I came into so I, I was lucky. I came in as just probably what we all call as just a rat who runs about, <laughs> puts in a lot of effort, Um and then when I came in, I like, agreed. I only got my debut be call up because someone got injured that week before, and because I was at uni, I was available. And I think for me, it was it was a big reality check to actually um, play at the international level. I remember I came on and I thought to myself, "Wow, this is this, this is a, this is completely different to what I'm used to." And it's like what you've you've both said. I think over the years, my games changed so much, and it took me a while to learn actually what what am I in futsal what player do I want to be? Um, and look, it comes with its challenges. I think, I think as players, we, we, we need to know what are our strengths and our weaknesses. I think a yeah. lot of us try to do everything rather than, than trying to be really good at one or two things. Like what Cookie said, I'm never going to do a step over. I try, but I'm never going to do one. But sort of, I, I know, I know my strengths and I think that's to sort of anyone listening that it doesn't matter really where you are at the moment. It's where you want to get to and what are you doing and sacrificing to get to that next level, um, which I think is really important. It's probably the same for Liam as well, what, how he's improved his game. He went abroad, obviously, to improve and, and whatnot. And for me, that's as well. But no, it's, I think if you want to succeed in futsal, you have to, com- you have to, commit, to uh, you have to commit to it and want to learn and, and take on honest feedback at times. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, that, I think that probably leads us on something we weren't, necessarily touch on today but seeing as that sort of Russell sort of led us into it me and Liam had an interesting conversation last night or the night before in terms of you know the the type of player that you are like Russ has just kind of said there in that you have to figure out what is your what is your strength and what are your weaknesses and you have to you have to figure out how you can best put you can put your best self on court so we talked, me and Liam talked around like the kind of player that he was viewed as when he first came into the squad. So I remember a lot of team meetings and stuff where it was like, Liam is this, you know, a 1v1 player. Let's get him set, getting him setting up 1v1s down the line and things like that. And I think 
Liam will probably be the first to say that that isn't that isn't Liam's strength. I think he's got the ability to do that, and at various different levels, his success and relative success will sort of consequential to the to the scenario and the opposition and the, the the physicality and everything else of the person he's up against. But there was very much um the perception that Liam was a one v one player. And actually over the years what we're actually seeing is that Liam is not a one v one player. I mean I can't I couldn't tell you the last time he skipped down the line against somebody in the NFS. Listen but no, 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 let me finish. if you let see the highlights Sunday, ask Russell, it was Russell Wales seven years ago. <laughs> Yeah, so apart from his panic dribble against Wales seven years ago and scoring that goal, I think Liam has developed into a, a very different kind of player than the what pe- the perception was when he first came into the squad. And I think that's that's what we, that's what Russ is kind of getting to in terms of figuring out what you are as a player and and what gives you the best opportunity to impact high level futsal games, not just impact games at, at national league level and NFS level, because the reality is. Liam probably could be a 1v1 gangster in the NFS. But if he did that, when he stepped up, he wouldn't be able to be as successful as an overall futsal player because he wouldn't be able to go 1v1 against the international players he's coming up against because, you know, they've got a better understanding of how to defend, how to defend individuals, how to defend space, um, how the cover and balance works. And, and obviously then you've got the physical sort of disadvantages that Liam has. And I think for players who are trying to, formulate what they are in the nfs i think figuring out what your strengths are playing into those but at the same time recognizing your weaknesses so if you're a 1v1 player and you give the ball away 60 percent of the time in the nfs or even 40 percent of the time what's that success rate going to look like when you make the step up so are you actually a 1v1 player and if you're not or if you're only getting 50 percent success or 40 30 20 whatever the percentage is i'm just throwing numbers out there do you actually have to look at the the weakness the weaker sides of your game and go i need to improve these if i'm going to be able to impact games differently you know whether that be showing in the middle but understanding why you're showing in the middle and what your impact is when you're in there and i think liam has probably developed that a lot over the last sort of 10 years and like i say going abroad and playing week in week out has helped that but that's just kind of the to touch to touch back to what we went on last week in terms of like the differences between stepping up. I don't know what you think about that, Liam, in terms of the way you developed over the years as a player. Um, yeah. Well, firstly, if there's any highlights from Sunday, Russell, I know you see that step over Megs. That was crazy, Russell. Come on, Gatton, why have up. you missed out the part of missing the open goal when the goal? No, no, because we're not outside. talking about that. We're talking about we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about one v one. We're not talking about scoring goals. I do plenty of that, but we're talking about one v ones. But um. Yeah, I remember, like, uh, obviously, say, first coming in, Scoobs was, you know, keen to push on me being, like, say, this this 1v1 player. Uh, but if I'm being honest, I'm probably giving away a bit of my bit of my tactics here, how I play the game. When I get the ball in a wide area to, to, to face up a 1v1, I am never actually thinking about going 1v1. I'm only trying to push the player back, effectively. So, like, you know, you just walk the ball up slowly. It's just to gain, gain metres or yards, whatever, to, to be then looking for a pass to the pivot or just waiting for something else to open up, but just trying to keep my defender occupied and um, yeah, thinking about when's he going to go down the line sort of thing. Um, So yeah, I I knew pretty early that, you know, that wasn't really what I wanted to be. I knew my, my my super strength is like you would say, showing in the middle, but causing confusion between, you know, the, the first line pressure like you know, between this, the the second and the third man, do they do they follow me to the exchange? Because sometimes I'll go in the middle, but then sometimes I'll show in front of them. 
just to make them give them different things to think about. And you say a, a lot of that was being learned from, let's say, going abroad. Lucky enough to play in back of United. Obviously, when we had well, we were full time. We had like World Cup winners and stuff like that. So, you know, I was lucky to learn from them guys, and so that that's what put me in a a good position going forward with England. Because I think not many, probably Russell. That that that's, I think that's a, I think that's the list of the people who kind of. Got, and maybe I'm wrong. Like you say you boys might think something different, but I just think yeah, me and Russ were like the kind of like the main two who you would say were like, like our best connectors of connecting the play. Yeah, I think Russ used Something to describe is, it really yeah. well. Um, yeah. you, you used to use a specific word that described you as a player. Do you remember what it is? Remember what it is? Can we guess? Yeah, God, this could be anything. <laughs> Rat. Was, was I feeling myself? No, so you used to, you, when I remember us sort of I having discussions around the England squad. Oxy, oxygenate. Uh, yeah, hey, so. That's Scoob's word, that is. No, no, I heard that word from a Marquinhos talk. I heard that from a Marquinhos talk. Yeah, so I remember Ross describing himself as a player who basically oxygenated the, the, the four that he was with. And I no, remember, wait, did he say that, by the way? Well, no, but, right, so the, the first time I heard the first time I heard I'm never Ross, saying that. Um, but I, I remember having discussions um, as as players and, and coaching staff about who you'd like to play with and everything else. And I remember having discussions of what say, t- telling people that I wanted to play with Ross and I wanted to play with Liam because I felt that they were the players who helped get the most out of me because my strength... All right. Whilst I can show in the middle, I know that that's not my strength. My strength is recognizing space on in the wide areas and then connecting vertically with a pivot, um, or like you say, potentially not necessarily setting up one v ones, but exploiting weak side of weak sides of defenses. So players like Liam and Ross, who were really good at getting into the middle and creating that confusion and maybe creating a, a strong side of the defence for the opposition, created the weak side for me, and I was great at going to sort of get in that space. Um, Whereas I think what a lot of people view sort of futsal as is ball to feet. And I certainly do. And that's why I continually maintain that I'm a footballer still playing futsal, regardless of the, the level and kind of the relative success that I had. I don't know about what do you think, Wardy? Because you've obviously, you're probably, you know, now becoming more of a futsal player over the last few years based on your experiences at Bloomsbury. Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for asking to play with Russ and Liam and not me. Cheers. <laughs> to be honest, it didn't. It didn't like you were. You were playing pivot. So, like from my point of view, you you were probably a pivot who I had no issues playing with. But you always wanted to come round on the false on the left hand on the on your strong side, which was well, because nobody could pass in. forward. I, had I mean, to come round. Yeah, but that's because you didn't play with me. Exactly. That's why I like playing with you. But you didn't yeah, play with no, me. But you didn't want to. You didn't want to stay forward. Um, yeah, no, you've, you've 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 talked about some interesting things there. I mean, just listening to you guys talk, it's, I think I'd be interested to know if people listening or like young players if they know what their strengths are. Because I I remember that chat we had with Scoobs when he was like, "Look, we've got to get you all of you working on your superpower. What's your superpower?" And I always remember thinking, sat there like, I don't know. And I remember we get um, we're still trying yeah. to figure yours out. <laughs> exactly. I, th- I think it's hosting podcasts. I think it's just being effective. But uh, when we did, um, if you remember this as well, we, we were out in Israel for the prequels. Again, back to the topic of the podcast, prequels. When uh, we'd qualified from Israel, everyone had, like wrote down like something good about every player, and like everyone would stand up, and then it came to me, and no one had anything. <laughs> it was like, easy, good lad. Thanks for coming. But like uh, that was good for the, the socials. Likes a game of cards. 
the socials no nah, I was I was amazing that tournament and you know you know it but um <clears throat> I think that was one of the things where like like you say I'm not really a foot up player naturally like my my traditional is sort of like heads down dribble so I've had to fight against that the whole my whole career of trying to not just put your head down and dribble and actually try and figure out the tactics a bit more I mean Juan's helped me so much with that side of my game um and I think he's probably probably coached me more than any other coach I've had in terms of like yes a coach can lay out a game plan or a tactic but Juan would actually you know we'd spend a lot more time clipping it going through why talking it through talking it through and stuff so yeah I think he helped me massively and I think you can, you've always got to have those people who do sort of see something in you and, and help you improve it it's very hard to just do it yourself yeah I think I think the one of the, the big things you said there is is the why I know that you know I I did a camp at Northern Ireland pre-Christmas uh, where we looked at some just basic 3-1 sort of frameworks and principles and a few of the lads probably the lads who are based over in Northern Ireland their their feedback was that it was probably the first time that somebody had kind of explained why I wanted them to do something rather than just telling them to do it and kind of expecting them to figure out the reason why on on their own so yeah. I, I do think that's really important and you know I've I've spoke to Juan a lot in terms of you know the information he gives across and and I'm I believe that he is one of the the top coaches and I think he's he's improved certainly your understanding of the game and I'm sure it's the same for everybody else's and I suppose again that kind of leads on to the other thing we were going to talk about in what do we like as players from coaches and what do we think helps and works for us in order to get those improvements yeah well just yeah, before we get into that then what do we think about the uh, any final thoughts on the prequels? Northern Ireland, Scotland, they're going to qualify. Yeah, three wins out of three for both of them. Going strong, supporting the uh, the home nation. I'm not as biased as you. I reckon Northern Ireland will beat Estonia. I think Cyprus will be a draw, and it'll be all to play for in Andorra. I think I think they'll just about get it, and then win the group. Scotland, Malta, Gibraltar, I'm backing them. Six points qualify. Switzerland. They'll be on the beach. They'll have a good night out. Hopefully they get a nice sort of run of games. Russ Liam, what do you reckon? I'm being optimistic. I think I hope both of them will qualify. I think they'll be tight games, but I think hopefully both of them will qualify. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I want, want both to qualify, of course, for home nations, but I f- if I'm looking at Scotland, they've got, like the, 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 for me, the best chance of qualifying. Um, however, I felt like out of the home nations, they were the ones that probably dropped off the most like you can see Northern Ireland's improvements and Scotland I don't know felt like they, that game started to become easier and the Northern Ireland game became harder and that obviously wasn't the case when we were playing home nations um, so I'd be well, Northern, Northern Ireland beat Scotland last time as well didn't yeah, they that's, yeah that's what I mean but like I say it's, but for me it's not a surprise from what I've been seeing and like they say how well I can't say I don't know how Scottish football what it's like but like you say it just they just seem like yeah, the levels have dropped down a lot and you can see that Northern Ireland were on the rise. So, um, obviously, if, if, you, if I had Northern Ireland in Scotland's group, I would have had them to qualify all day long. Um, but yeah, with their group, with Cyprus and Andorra, like I say, it's a tough ask because, like you say, the, the prof- uh, professional league in Cyprus and um, I, I remember playing against the Andorra team in Champions League and, like I say, they weren't a bad side. So, uh, I want them both to qualify, but I'm not sure if they will. Ooh. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think yeah. just to touch on the uh, what what Leah was 
talking about there in terms of Scotland and, and Northern Ireland in terms of where their squads probably sit. I feel like if you relate it back to when we played Wales in the first few home nations, I think they were in a position with a group of players who had been there for like four, five, six years and they were kind of getting to that focal point of right this is the squad that is there or thereabouts to try and achieve a prelim qualification and they obviously never never made it happen I think Northern Ireland are at that point now I think they've got senior players a good group of senior players who are really competitive and have got some really good attributes um, and work well together as a a squad to compete Um, and I think now it's about can they put it all together in one qualifying campaign that gets them over the line in the way that Wales couldn't. I think for Scotland, having watched, obviously been involved in the Northern Ireland Scotland games just be again, just before Christmas, I think it was sort of October time, November time. I think Scotland looked like they're in a very transitional period. They've got Mm -hmm. a lot of young players who are relatively new to the game. Uh, A couple of older heads, you know, Kyle Ballingall, captain, you know, good player, been around for a long time, but I feel like, the younger players that are coming through, they, they're they yet to taste prelim action and, and full internationals. So I think they're probably a little, in terms of their development, are probably a little bit further behind than where Northern Ireland are. Whether that transitions into a slightly easier group, we'll see. But I do wish them both the best. Good luck, boys. All right, so... The next topic we're going to be covering, and we've talked about it a bit already today, is as players, what is it that we like about the coaches that we've had? How does a player want to be coached? Obviously, Cookie, you're transitioning at the moment from player to coach. Um, so you can probably see both sides of the coin. Do you want to start us off with your thoughts on this? Yeah, I can do. Um, I think... I think I've been uh, over the last three or four years sort of going through that transition. I think when I look back at probably my, well, my very first session that I took for Bolton as a bit of a guest, um, there's a clip of it on YouTube. When I watch it back, I, I cringe a little bit, not, not because the information I'm giving the sort of group of kids that I was coaching was, was bad, but more so that it was probably aimed at the wrong age group or the wrong bracket of players. And I think over the, my first 12 months, I think that's been a real learning curve uh, in terms of understanding what what players want um, and what they need. And I think as, as senior players and as a senior coach now, I'm I'm very keen to to make sure that each session kind of hits what they want rather than always being what I want. Because what I want all the time is a lot of structure and a lot of a lot of the tactical stuff to be seen and and to come out. But actually, at the same time, you have to create quite a lot of chaos in order to understand whether your players can then transition from maybe an unopposed exercise into something that's got interference and then move it up the the sort of bracket. But as a player, I just love to be matched up and to play as often as I can. So I try and bring it to game-related stuff as quickly as possible. No, I was just going to say, when you talk about the unopposed exercises... Would you, for example, suggest doing a unopposed 4-0 drill against Cones for an entire season and then never using that 4-0 in a match, perhaps? Probably not. And I think that, again, right. that that experience is probably part of the reason why that plays into my coaching um, kind of, philo- not philosophy, but in terms of like the, the way I'm trying to formulate my coaching sessions. I want it to be related to the things we do on a weekend. So I know what you're referring to and I'll let you 
elaborate on that for the for the listeners. Yeah, so I, yeah, I know no, Russ I was there. After. Liam might not have been there at that time. Well, I, did, I, did this, I did the bit. start, I did it till Christmas. Oh, goodness me. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we when we were all playing together at a team, one of the drills we did every single time for about half an hour, given that this squad was, you know, had a lot of good players, if you just let them play themselves, they'd have learned probably more than doing an unopposed 4-0 drill against keepers for about half an hour. Every single Wednesday, Friday for a year. Anyway, not enjoyable. Can I jump in? Because yeah. I personally enjoy them, them drills. However, obviously, like you say, we, we, we do that for 30 minutes and then never do it in a game. But in Baku, where we were full-time, we would do them sorts of movements, like exercises for 20, 30 minutes, but then you'd see it in the game. And I think that's how I actually did improve to some point. Like, because obviously that's when I first started. That was my first main futsal experience. So it was like trying to understand why are they doing this? Like, for me, it was like really weird to be training. Uh, well, say doing these movements with no with no players. It just I was like, this is weird. Why? I don't understand. Yeah. And then later on, it helped me understand why. But when you did it there, were you doing it as like this is the exercise, or were you doing it sort of like a warm up? Because when I was in Italy, they did um, it like a passing yeah, it drill was, it, as a warm up. Yeah, so it was a warm up, but also that was it was movements that we were going to play on Sunday. Yeah. So, so for me, I actually didn't have a problem with that exercise if that was what we were going to do on a Sunday. But obviously, yeah. we knew, as we knew when we got there, we didn't do that. It kind of just became just play as you want and go and win the game. Yeah, and I think I think that's kind of the, the I suppose what we're alluding to is that is is there a focus behind what you're doing as a coach? Um, yeah. is, it, is it transferable into your game situation or are you facilitating something you've seen or been told that doesn't actually yeah. benefit your players? So like yeah, I say, I think if we'd have all been playing that 4-0 for the 6 to 12 months that we were doing it, I think we'd have improved as players. But yeah, I think I the problem was the, the, the detail around it and the reasons why, if we, lead it, if we take it back to that, they weren't yeah, there. Weren't so there, I yeah. think as a, as a player, I got really frustrated that season because I, I was obviously committing to travelling down to Helvetia to train so that we could improve as a group for Helvetia and also for England. Yeah. But that exercise that we would we're talking about, we, we, we didn't see that once in a full season of playing on in, in the actual league games. And I think that's where the frustration came was that I, I do unopposed exercises now as a coach and I'd see the benefit of them and I'll use them as part of an extended warm up and then transfer them up into a game related situation so that I can then stop and, and step in and give them a bit more of the reasons why and talk about individual parts of whatever the framework looks like. But I think mm-hmm. that's the important bit. I, Doing the doing the movements, so a bit of muscle memory, a little bit of that sort of plays into it. But at the same time, you want the players to understand the technical, tactical, and probably game understanding reasons of why you're doing it. And I just don't think we got that during that time at, at doing that four zero at Helvetia. Because let's be honest, it, we we know it's a good four zero because we know who does. But it wasn't transferable to us because it didn't relate to the most. To be honest, it didn't relate to the people we were going to be playing against either. Because we generally, outside of maybe one or two games, at most yeah. two games, everybody sat off in a low to mid block. Yeah. So a four-zero was not really going to be transferable to our game state anyway. Well, that's when you got head loss that season, calling everyone out yeah. for, for low blocking. 
No, I think I think that's 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 the season where I was getting frustrated with the sport a little bit because yeah. we were we were beginning to try and challenge ourselves at England. So we were playing Georgia, um, Poland, Croatia. We were we were playing some better yeah. nations, and I felt like I remember going out to Georgia and obviously playing Georgia, where we went out there to to try and be really competitive, and obviously they nationalised the Brazilians and it made the game a little bit different because we decided to go on full press for forty minutes, or well, for the majority of the game as a learning exercise. Yeah. And then I remember playing them on like a, a Tuesday, Wednesday, traveling back Thursday, Friday and playing against, I think it was sort of Baku at the time at the Copper Box on a smallish court who only had like oh, yeah, seven remember, players. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they genuinely just defended the D. It wasn't even a half court block. It was a, it was a 10 meter low block <laughs> for 40 minutes. And it was like, this isn't what is going to help me or help anybody challenge teams like Georgia, Croatia, Poland, and whoever else we sort of played. And I think yeah. at the time I was just getting frustrated because I probably felt like I was getting towards the, the latter end of my playing career. And I wanted to improve enough to make a main round. And the one sort of tick I don't have on my little England checklist is a win at main round level. I don't know about you guys, but I know that we've gone on a bit, but linking back to sort of the, the, the cone drill, I look, obviously for someone like me, you all know what I'm like. I'm, for me to sort of understand the concept, I need to see it a few times before I actually understand it. Also, knowing the reason why helps, but something that I think when we're talking about coaching is, I don't know if you do this, Cookie, but I know Juan does it a lot when he exposes you to a concept prior to you going to training and learning about it. So before I've even turned up, turned up, I already know what we're looking at or the movement we're currently doing, which allows me to just prepare myself for it as well. So in my head, I, I'm already ready for it because um, if I turn up at a session, the thing that I always found the hardest is that when, when we used to when we all used to play together and they used to be like, OK, we're now doing this. And it used to take my brain like 10 minutes to try and figure out, well, what are we even doing? Where am I even moving? What's even happening here? Um, and I think for for people listening, obviously, everyone's a different player. Everyone learns differently. And for me, I, as a teacher, Everyone learns differently. You have to know what works for people. And I can only imagine it's it's the same as a coach. Everyone learns differently. And I think exposing to people, exposing people to it with a video or or something like that or a demonstration before turning up to training, I think's really helped me this year. So when I turn up, I actually know what we're looking at. And then I feel prepared, ready that I know what's expected. Rather than turning up in the first 10, 15 minutes is wasted just describing what we have to do. Yeah, so I think I, I I agree, and I think people take information in differently. So I probably do something similar in that. What I'll do is weeks, probably weeks prior to wanting to maybe introducing something new, where I'll do a small exercise for me within within a two hour session that might last fifteen to twenty minutes, where I'm looking at what the concept is without telling any of the players, but I'm not asking them to do anything particular. The conditions I've put on the game give me the outcomes that I want to see. I'll then sort of take my learning from that 15 to 20 minute session away for a couple of weeks, probably probably um, put it onto paper and, and put it into a format that I can give out to the players and say, right, okay, this is a concept we're going to look at. Um, so I can give them a visual aid before we then go into it. And then what we have at Bolton is we've got a Google drive where I, where any of the information I sort of give them or, or sort of put down electronically, whether it be set pieces, frameworks, uh, attacking fly, defending fly principles, 
um, little presentations about video analysis and stuff like that. I put that onto a Google Drive and make that available for them so that they can always refer back to it because I don't want to be touching on the same frameworks if they're relatively basic over and over again. Now, we will do as part of our extended warm-up, but the reality is, like you were saying, I want players to take that accountability of, well, if I know that we're going to be reviewing, if we, as a player we're going to be going back to doing this, I want to be able to refer back to it without me having to go, this is what we're doing at the start of every session type scenario. Um, do, we, but yeah, do we all read I, those docs as players? That, well, I think I think that's it, isn't it? I know. I know I put a Google Drive out at the start of the season that I've added to a couple of times. I would imagine that the majority of my players have probably not reviewed since I gave it them. They might have looked at it on the first day, uh, maybe even the first week leading up to the game. And I would imagine the only players who have looked at it since then are a few and far between. But I can't control that. I just have to judge that based off what I see on court and whether they understand the principles and concepts that I'm trying to to put in place and that, I suppose as a coach that's kind of where the frustration can lead in but I think my challenge to you then is is that the right medium to get through to those players no it's it's an addition to getting through to those players because the reality is you're only going to get through to players who want to get better and want to, to want to improve and I think that's what we covered last week is that how committed are you to actually being a better futsal player so I know that the four people who are on this have all spent the last 10 years wanting to improve their knowledge of the game their understanding of the game and then ultimately their implement implementation on court um, they, they wanted their level to go up I don't think everybody has that I think a lot of players are quite happy to score goals and win games against the bottom half of the NFS or the National League, but they don't quite understand what it takes to then compete with the top two or three. And let's be honest, at the moment, it's the top two, Manchester and Bloomsbury, if we're talking in England. But then at the same time, like, what does success look like when you go above and beyond Manchester and Bloomsbury? Because if you can't get success there, you're not going to get success above it. And having ability does not mean that you're going to be successful. You have to have an understanding of the game. That's probably more important than just being able to deal with the ball. Uh, Bloomsbury is the prime example, like from our Champions League experience, you know, we've gone there and lost three games. Yeah, and um, and we as a group we probably spoke we probably spoke about what the reasons why um, maybe that it didn't translate up the up the levels and there's probably various different reasons and to be honest I thought you were really successful in terms of carrying out your yeah, game plan like the, the, first the majority two, uh, of the game the second game the first game against second um, and third games yeah, yeah first uh, game was horrible but like you different. say against the, the two professional teams we were miles better and they like say probably unfortunate to not get a result but there's obviously reasons to why that didn't happen. Yeah, on another day, right, we could say that we could have gone on there and nicked a couple of wins, right? Yeah. But right, yeah. And we're still still so focused on even this, the, the pre-quals. We're so far behind that. Don't get me wrong. Pre-quals, the... pre-quals Champions League is completely different to pre-quals International. Because obviously pre-quals Champions League, people are paying good money to... Yeah, I think that's harder. Foreigners. So yeah, I, I think, I think, it's 100% harder. I think the level is higher in the pre-quals for the Champions League than it is in the pre-quals. Certainly now, the pre-quals for the internationals, maybe not so much five to ten years ago when the pre-quals was 48 teams and yeah. you were still playing a game. At least sort of like the top ten teams had four or five professionals within them. You know, I think back to playing like Moldova and, and even Albania had professional players. You know, it's yeah. like now, like you say, you look at Gibraltar and Malta and, and Ireland and Scotland and it's like, that's a weaker prelims than than has been previously because the format's changed. You know, we would have been a prelim, yeah. we, we've been a prelim team. So, by the same token, the main round is now weaker for everybody who's a, above us or above England in the rankings. You know, yeah. so the yeah. format has changed. Prequels in the Champions League now is much harder than prequels in, in the internationals, in my opinion. So, do you want to talk a little bit about 
so we've covered the sort of the domestic angle, but we'd, again, we're moving back on, onto the international side of things. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that international coaching setup has been? I know, Cookie, you've got the Northern Ireland experience. We've all had the England stuff. What is it that's worked for you? What's kind of, what could it be? Uh, I'll start. I'll start. Um, look, I, I, think, I think for me, the human side of it is is the, one of the most important things because I think a, a lot of people, as we all know, we had to give up annual leave. I used to have to take unpaid time off um, as deal with as well as dealing with work stuff out there, and I think the human side to understand that is is some of the most important things. I think from my point of view is, if I reflect back on my time at England, although I thought I played well and I've done well, I I, I still think it was quite an, a negative experience for me, um, in terms of my game time and and sort of my experience as a whole, um, and I think that really did impact me like. My confidence, I think, went for a little bit of time. My motivation went because there's only so many times that's what you compete for. That's what I improved for. That's what I wanted to do is to, to reach that level of play for England. And I'd go away and I'd think, you know what? I've done well today. I've clipped my stuff. I've done what's needed of me. And and then yet it doesn't translate into, into anything. Into And again, it doesn't have to be minutes, but into sort of anything particular on court and I, I think that, that recognition was really, that was, yeah recognition and look, that was really tough for me to to sort of to sort of hear and I think one of the comments that's all still sort of sort of lingers with me as well is well two comments is one of them when Cookie said to me after a training session once when he was on the side he goes I spoke to the manager and said look what happens when Russell's on the the session with keep ball I think it was when we was doing the end-to-end keep ball um and Cookie said to me, oh, to, 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 to the gaffer, was like, look what happens when Russell's on it. Their team won't lose the ball. And I never sort of saw myself like that. And that sort of, that sort of gave me a bit of confidence. I took that into the game and just, yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that was a part of the origin think, story. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's probably prevalent into um, a lot of the things we've discussed in, over the past probably couple of podcasts in, in that not everybody sees the game the same. So not every coach values the same kind of player. Not every player values the same kind of teammate. You know, I was I was a player who wanted players who were going to sort of accentuate my strengths and play into to my strengths. And or I wanted to play with players who I could get the best out of their strengths, you know. So I wanted people who were going to find themselves on the second post. So, for instance, like I loved playing years gone by with, with Bally and with Parksy as pivots because I knew that they understood what I wanted from them because Parksy would, if we were deep in the court, he'd get in front and and pin so we could use him as an out ball. And I think one of my, well, probably my super strength was finding, finding passing lanes for the ball from back to front. I don't think we ever maximized what, what the connection looked like outside of me connecting directly with the pivot. I don't think we ever really worked enough on wingers connecting, but at the same time, like, as a, as a squad, it always felt like it felt like we were probably in our infancy throughout out sort of the England tenure, because we did have changes in players. Players would fall away from the sport and new players would come in. And it felt like we were every three to four years. It felt like we were back to the start of the cycle again. So maybe we never really got to that point. And, and I do think that moving forward, that that will probably change. Uh, we touched a bit on coach education and, and this, the effort that players and coaches are going to, to now improve their understanding and knowledge. But 
and, and Bally was the opposite. Bally would completely run away and give me space to play into and find himself on the second post. And, you know, we had probably a different kind of wavelength where I had the ability to beat my individual player and he just knew how to find himself in that position where I could maximize the, the finishing sort of potential. Um, and I, I, I just not sure that coaches necessarily pl- see who plays well together. So I'll give you an example. Me and me and Bally used to be on the same training team together quite a lot in, in the early days. So you're going back to sort of 2011, 12, 13, and we would comfortably combine for two or three goals in every training game we ever had. But we spent most of those years never really touching court together in an international game. And like we've talked about, Wardy, me and you very rarely played together. I don't, I couldn't, I can't remember. I couldn't tell you if I've assisted a goal for you, for instance, and we've probably been involved in what, how many caps you got? Yeah, 60. You haven't. And I've probably been involved in at least 40 of those games, probably missed a few, few injuries and suspensions, but we won't go into that today. Um, Whereas I know that I've assisted how many for Liam, four or five in out of his nine, maybe or however many he got, yeah. and, a, and probably a couple for Russ, who's only got a couple. But, and again, that's probably because I played together with certain players more than others, but I'm not sure everybody sees connections and understands who plays well together, what four looks great together. And I think yeah. England, because of the, the sort of the diverse squad we had in certain, you know, we, we probably had a slightly stronger group and then a group of, upcomers continually up continually coming up because it was constantly changing i'm not sure we ever really got to the point where we could make russ feel like he was how valuable he could be to the squad we had yeah i mean with the whole topic of this bit is about how what we want as players right and i definitely think that communication where where do you stand is important and even if it's like you're not in my 12 knowing that as a player gives them a choice. Do they kick on, do extras, ask the coach for more, or do they shy away? I think you're a great example, Russ, of, you know, you took it the right way, but you could have taken it the wrong way and dropped out completely. And we have seen players with potential drop out. Yeah, I think that falls back into the, the mental sort of fortitude we were talking about previously and that I think we see a lot of players who miss out on a squad because for whatever for whatever the reason is and then they just decide that that's it it's done I'm not going to try I'm not going to put the effort in I'm just going to I'm just going to leave it or like not really be bothered and I think the players who ultimately kick on are the ones who bring it back to themselves and go okay I I mean and I tell a lot of my young players if something doesn't go right don't blame externally look internally first re- find that resolution and then start to look at the external factors and see where you can control that um i think first and foremost like russ said you've got to look internally and go okay well is there something i can do that's going to push me up the bracket and you know i think russ probably one of the players who worked himself physically in terms of his if if you look at russ when he first came in he was skinny and 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 stick thin there was nothing to him oh. maybe maybe not not look right now but you look at the period of time where russ was probably impacting games for england and you know that's that's not a skinny guy that was playing five years ago that's a guy who's gone away worked on his physicality followed all these strength and conditioning programs and come back and been able to handle himself on the international scene which has then resulted in probably a better experience in the latter parts of his England career so I need to add to that as well about the strength and conditioning I think the sessions we got genuinely were barring probably one of the sessions that we all know what I'm talking about and we can laugh at there were 
there were honestly those sessions were incredible and that's something that the I think even now I still follow the exact same sessions and I think having that as a as a model and as a, as a template I know Wardy and I went to the gym a couple times together as well um to do those sessions I think that was something that that is is huge to follow as well not just what you do at your training session but what you do away from it and i think yeah, i, 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 I did want to give you a bit of I gas want... for us about about before you change the topic topic because cookie said you were skinny when you came in and you were and you're not the tallest um but i think your ability to hold off a man is something that i think definitely would have cost you getting in the team but the fact that you're you know five foot four being able to hold off marinovich seeing you get gassed, you know, you need to be able to do that at international level, especially. But that like, all came, you can't that get all came from off. feedback, though, didn't it? Um, exactly. It all came from you need to avoid the battles. And when you spoke about earlier about coming into the middle, there were so many, I, I, I just avoided players because I knew I wasn't going to be able to beat, like, beat them physically. So coming in in a gap, passing it and waiting for them then to tackle you and found what I found worked for me. Um just, yeah. just touch, just touching on feedback there that um, Russ mentioned. Like, if we're talking player-coach relationships, as a player, all I ever wanted was honesty. I just, yeah. If, yeah. I just wanted somebody to be honest with me. I didn't, I didn't want you to blow smoke up my. I didn't want you to blow smoke up me. I didn't want you to take. Let's catch. Yeah, <laughs> Calvin won't need to edit that one. Um, I didn't want somebody to tell me what they thought I wanted to hear. I wanted them to tell me exactly what they thought. Because without that information, I can't process it and take it away and go and either make a decision on whether I want to improve it or whether I disagree with it and I'm just going to ignore it. So as a as a coach, I I try and be as honest, whether it be brutal or not, and you you three can probably attest to that. I try and be as brutally honest with my no. players in terms of my thought processes as I can. Okay, I probably I probably frame it differently now than I did do when we were having those conversations, but I think Russell, the reason you're that useless. Yeah, I mean, I, the framing got a little bit better after that first conversation. Um, but I think the reason why we probably stayed connected as a group of friends, as well as teammates, is that we all had that little bit of brutal honesty where if we if we were being told something or if we saw something, we could go, no, actually, like, you might be seeing this, but this is what I'm seeing, and this is what I think you need to do, and this is what I think you need to get better at. Not just talking me, I'm talking sort of as a as a group, you know, and I include sort of Max and Calvin and Webby and a few others, because, to be fair, there was quite a lot of us, um, but I think we sort of developed our own kind of feedback group um, for anybody who wanted to be involved in it, and wasn't afraid of taking criticism and wanted to get better. And I think that's the key bit is we all wanted to improve. So being told you weren't good at something wasn't seen as, a, as a negative. It was seen as a, okay, here's an opportunity for me to get better. Can I read yeah. you a quote that I've, I've read all, uh, to my class today twice. It's about feedback. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to better myself in reading because the last book I read was the hungry caterpillar. Um, let me read you this quote from a book. It's about feedback. Um, we learn from our failures it is simple and as difficult as that what failure gives us is feedback it's the feedback we receive that is the key to unlocking the next level of understanding informational feedback only comes from failure so exposing ourselves to situations where we could possibly fail and test our knowledge in uncertain circumstances in order to gain as much feedback as possible is crucial 
Amen. I think that I think uh, yeah I don't know if we want to make that a regular Russell quotes on the pod I don't know how we'll <laughs> see how make the sure, viewers take make sure it. you like and subscribe if you like the quotes please put the, put W's in the chat or whatever you want but I think that was really important because like what we said when some people get feedback from failure or for something not going well they they, they don't deal with it well and they crumble yeah but I think the, the the takeaway here is right just as a player just tell us tell us what's happening like why didn't I get picked and I think it's hard, and I don't see all coaches do. Yeah, I, in fairness, I, as somebody who is transitioning to coaching, I think the fact that this is a grassroots sport in club surroundings, it can make it a little bit more difficult to have that brutally honest conversation because a lot of the times, certainly for me, one of the things I've struggled with over the past two or three years is ultimately coaching a group of peers and you know, also off the court, you know, a, a group of probably friends. So that for me personally has been a bit of a challenge. Um, and I think with, with not having the England team between me taking over and up until this point, it's been very difficult to focus players and kind of hold them to that additional level of accountability because what are they really trying to improve for? And I think that's that's now probably my challenge as a coach to my sort of senior group is, okay, well, how do we kick on from here? Because we can compete with the top two and we can we we, we can obviously, you know, we've we've been successful against the sort of bottom five or six this season. But for me, that's not enough. And for them, it shouldn't be enough. But yep. the feedback I kind of get is that maybe it is. And then we'll just try and compete later on. Whereas actually, no, I don't want to compete. I want to dominate. And if that might not happen now. And I'm not, I don't view any of the stuff I do at Bolton as, as short term. It's all long term because I'm not really going anywhere. I'm going to be involved in the sport for a long time. And we've got a group of young players coming through. So, you know, I don't need, I don't, I'm not desperate to win the, the league this year, next year, the year after. Whenever it, ha- if it happens, it happens. It'll happen either naturally or it won't. But for players, because you're the players, you're the ones who are going to do it. You have to want to go and do that. And you have to understand that in order to do these things, you have to hold yourself accountable. I mean, you know, I'm a big, big fan of player accountability as well, pushing each other, demanding more from each other, expecting better from each other and not just accepting mediocre success. Yeah. I think that'd be a really good topic to probably jump into in a bit more detail around how do you hold each other accountable at Bloomsbury we've that was the, one of the first sort of things that we were really looking into when we had um Webby come on board as an assistant start of last season and he really helped a lot of people kind of understand the difference between I'm having a go at you because you did something wrong and I want you to be better versus the person receiving that information going like oh why are you shouting at me mm-hmm. and the fact that they ignore it because someone's had a go at them they're not having a go at you about you as a person it's not attack on you as a person it's i'm trying to help you this is a game situation and i need to give you information and i'm you know i'm pumped i'm in the zone like you have to press in better or whatever it is and you're right players don't know how to take that at the minute so and that's a really good one to jump into a bit more detail yeah no i agree and i think that's probably where the early england days uh, for me were probably a little bit frustrating because I think a lot of people saw me as negative when it wasn't negative it was more a case of no I I need you to be better in this situation that situation and I also need you to go away and be better because I want to and we want to compete at a higher level than we're currently doing 
yeah, and I think you need to know what that level looks like to be able to give that authentically. Because, you know, if I've never competed for England and I go, if you want to play for England, you've got to be better at this, then they're going to go, you don't know. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Yeah. It, it, it certainly helps, um, but not everybody's going to have that. It, but I suppose part of the reason we, we made the decision to to have these conversations and put this kind of content out there is so that people get a little bit more of a an insight into our mindsets and a, a group of players who have who have been there and competed and had and I use the word relative success quite a lot, but relative success because like I yeah. say, I I want to I want to qualify out of a main round. You know, I want to win main round games. I want to be competing in main round competitions. You know, the prelims were always a precursor to being a bigger challenge. Yeah, we've been in and we failed and we've learned some stuff. Yeah. So no, I think that's a that's a really good uh, few topics discussed today. I think probably closing remarks. I hope more than qualifying, I hope Northern Ireland get a lovely trip to Cyprus. I hope Scotland, where would you want to go? Probably Malta. Yeah, Malta. That'd be a nice, lovely nice. little trip, that. Yeah, we've had a few good Malta trips in our... Our history. Yeah, I had horrible food poisoning in one of them because I was drinking the tap water. Don't drink the tap water. No, I think um, I put something in your, uh, in, in your food just so we, you didn't play. Yeah, cheers. Uh, I did all right, actually, that tournament. T, T got concussed, didn't he, first game? Was that the 2015 one? Yeah. Yeah, it was a... Yeah, we, we were unfortunate, that one. What was it? Two wins and a draw. He went out overall yeah. on goal score. I think, I think on this one, I think we open it out to anybody who is listening, all three of them. Uh, Russie's mum, Liam's dad, and, and and my kid, <laughs> well, one of my children. Um, if if they've got any topics they want us to sort of discuss and and cover, and we do have some plans moving forward to possibly get some different guests on. But I suppose in the media, is there anything that the viewers want us to listen, talk about, even or want to listen to? Yep, viewers, listeners, whatever, whatever your uh, choice of medium. Alrighty, so. Thank you all for tuning in and look forward to speaking to you soon. Cheers, Cookie. Cheers, Warwick.